Hello, you're listening to the Leadership Under Fire, Optimizing Human Performance podcast. I'm your host, Patty Murphy, and today we're going to revisit an interview that took place in 2014 at an event hosted by Leadership Under Fire. During this conference, a Navy SEAL commander with extensive operational experience shared his thoughts on navigating risk and resilience. This conversation was moderated by Leadership Under Fire Leadership Development Director Eric Nuremberg, who joins us today. Nuremberg is a deputy chief with the Iowa City Fire Department and a veteran of the United States Marine Corps. Eric, welcome. Thanks for having me, Patty. As I mentioned in the introduction, in 2014, Leadership Under Fire hosted the third annual Making Yourself Hard to Kill conference. We're about to hear an interview you conducted from that event. Can you set the stage for our listeners? Uh, Sure. So let me first tell you a little bit about um, who was in attendance at the conference and what we were looking to accomplish. And, And I would say that First of all, the, the crowds at our conference have really evolved over the years. And so today, you know, a contemporary LUF summit or conference will have in attendance firefighters and, and law enforcement officers and leaders from industry and, and business and even finance and the military and, and all levels of competitive sport. But the conference we're talking about in Maryland was geared towards and primarily attended by performance leaders from the fire service. And the capstone for this conference was a panel discussion on risk and resiliency. And there's a theme in the background here that's important to acknowledge, I think, because it's really formative to the effort. We spent a lot of time, the LUF team, in the beginning studying high reliability organizations, trying to identify really what the critical themes that contributed to, to mission success uh, were, particularly in austere conditions or, or competitive environments. And a critical weakness we identified very early was was really that every other major endeavor draws lessons from the experience of others. And what I mean is an adaptive business is critically examining the fields of economics and psychology and sport and philosophy. They're looking for utility and, and performance principles. The fire service, though, we really don't do that. In many ways, we kind of exist in an intellectual silo. And and this really is is good. It's complementary for our sense of tradition, but it slows our, our growth, I think. And it means that we're going to be primarily focused on learning our lessons the, the hard way. So um, we had committed to bringing folks with diverse experience mm-hmm. to our panels to share some important lessons so that our performance leaders in attendance would say, this stuff has nothing to do with, with the fire service. But wait. It, it actually has everything to do with the fire service. And so for this panel, we were fortunate to have uh, Chief Paul Conway, who retired as the chief of operations for the Milwaukee Fire Department. And he also operates a successful business supporting the fire service and law enforcement. We also had the good pleasure of hosting Sandy Alderson, who was a former platoon commander as a Marine in Vietnam. He was the architect of Moneyball as the manager of the Oakland A's and, and at the time of the panel, he was the general manager of the New York Mets and was engineering a great turnaround in that organization. And the commander joined us as well. And as a SEAL leader with extensive experience, both operationally and as a SEAL trainer, we really wanted to get his perspective on culture, on small unit leadership and performance, and, and how SEALs assess their operational environment. So it was our expectation that after hearing from all three subject matter experts, that the leaders in the audience would say, whoa, the principles of enhancing performance in the SEAL teams 
and in Major League Baseball have a lot of utility for my job as well. So here's the subject of our podcast, Patty. We'll call him the commander, mm-hmm. and we need to say a word about why we call him that. Uh, the, the podcast listeners certainly know that there's a large amount of media produced by former Navy SEALs, and of course we know their names. Um, our situation is a little unique here in that the subject of this podcast is still on active duty in the SEAL teams. And because he's a senior officer uh, leading and training SEALs, we want to honor his request to protect his identity. It's certainly the right thing to do. And just as I speak for myself and not my fire department, the commander has asked me to share the disclaimer that that his insights are his own and that they don't necessarily represent naval, naval special warfare. Perfect. Okay. So then let's dive into the conversation that you uh, moderated at this conference. One of the first questions you asked the commander was about navigating risk. What was the genesis of this first question? At that time, our team was doing a lot of studying and critical thinking about the operational environment at fires and complex emergencies. And what we were doing is is we were parsing our own fire ground experiences and, and reflecting on our diverse exposure to risk in, in other endeavors outside the fire service. So at the same time, we were really beginning kind of a years-long, deep examination of how individual and unit performance can be optimized. And one of the dimensions that's at the root of all that work is the acknowledgement that as firefighters, our operational environment is characterized by friction and disorder and complexity and maybe most significantly pervasive uncertainty. And the narrative that was involving in the fire service at the time of this conference and, and even before was one that was fixated on, on I would say, safety over service. And, and a lot of the strategic and tactical direction that was being propagated, I think, presupposed an aspect of certainty and an aspect of control that just isn't realistic when you consider the complexity of a contemporary fire ground. I mean, it's easy to identify how the mission could have been accomplished and everyone could have remained relatively safe when you had the luxury of starting at the outcome and working backwards, right? Not having to be inconvenienced by uncertainty. Really, in the midst of this conversation, the way we assess risk in the fire service is called into question. What does our risk assessment framework even look like? We commonly hear the notion that risk a little to save a little and risk a lot to to save a lot. But when you embrace the fact that that what can be saved generally falls within the category of pertinent unknowns, we realize that the risk a little framework isn't much help at all. And so we wanted to ask the commander how the SEAL teams deal with risk assessment. Okay, great. Let's take a listen to his response. So some of you may not like this answer. Um, culturally, we'll find out. But my thought is if, the, if we're getting better at quantifying risk, um, then theoretically we should be able to manage it better. Our goal should never be to reduce risk to zero. So if we can if we can quantify it and manage it better, then we should be able to do more dangerous things. We should be able to push the envelope even further than we have in the past uh, to become more effective at our mission. We're a very small organization, and we thrive on creativity. And we, we feel that if we write down doctrine, then we'll be self-constrained. And that's uh, very distasteful to us. We, we never want to let ourselves be constrained by our own policies. So, so we don't write it down, um, but we talk about it a lot. And, and when, I, when I frame risk, we're always thinking about it. 
the, the danger in any organization, I think, is to take something uh, in spirit being a good effort and turn it into a process, and we institutionalize it, and we, the bureaucracy takes hold, and it becomes a form that we fill out. I could, give a, I could care less about forms. What we want are guys to take that pause. How do you institutionalize guys taking that pause and thinking through it? We say we want you to assess risk to mission and risk to force with everything. Uh, sometimes we're willing to accept more on one or the other depending on what we're doing. You know, you talked about the mission, uh, the man and me, sometimes being flipped. We call that the hierarchy of loyalties. Very rarely do we go on a mission where I say the risk to mission is more important than the risk to force. 99% of what we do, risk to force is my number one priority. Uh, obviously, protecting our country, protecting our freedoms, uh, the Constitution, all those things are, are the, the underscored effort. But uh, when it comes to me what, taking risk for my men, that, that's my number one priority is to reduce that. However, and I think this is where it's more applicable and, and tied parallel to what you, you do as firefighters, when we're talking about a hostage rescue operation where we're going in to save a human being um, from the situation they have found themselves in, it's the one, t well, one of the only times where our risk to force is uh, put aside, where the risk to mission is now more important, where we will run into a door uh, with bullets flying everywhere to, to sacrifice ourselves, if need be, for, for, for another human being. I think it's a constant reassessment of the situation. You may be willing to accept more risk to your force on the initial portion, and now once those hostages and or people in the building are secured, okay, now we're going to take a step back, pregnant pause, have some tactical patience, and figure out how to methodically take this problem down. So again, a lot of parallels there to the fire service. Did any others come up during the conversation? Yes, uh, Patty, I think there were several, really. You know, one of the objectives in speaking with someone like the commander is to identify similarities in problem sets and compare the pervasive attributes of the operational environment so that we can answer the question, you know, what factors contribute to optimal performance in competitive or even dangerous endeavors? And then we wanted to go a step further than that and determine if those factors are universal, if, if they're portable from one, one endeavor to another. So one of the similarities that we see between firefighters going to fires in complex emergencies and SEALs taking the fight to America's adversaries is really the, the, when you begin to examine the problem sets in each dimension, you find that they have, uh, a, they have a great deal in common. To summarize it, I think maybe we could say that despite training and planning and intelligence, both the fire service and the special warfare community routinely encounter very fluid situations and very chaotic situations where nothing is certain, right? Problems abound. And it always seems like the clock is running towards failure. What I mean by that is that, is that we have to diagnose and deal with problems on the fly and before the next challenge hits us. So when we talk to someone like the commander, we especially want to know what tenants governing individual and small unit performance help tactical teams succeed when the mission is, is threatened by chaos and friction and uncertainty and all those other pervasive attributes. All right, let's listen in. You have to be comfortable uh, breaking the mold. You have to be comf comfortable going into a situation thinking it's going to end one way and go in a completely different course. And it's interesting, um, it's terrifying to think that there are leaders out there that would make these decisions, yet I've actually seen this in my career um, quite a bit, and I think, I think it's, this, it's this 
it's this willingness to lie to oneself and then just hope for the best. Um, I don't know if that rings a bell with anyone, but it's just it's like in, in the face of completely contradicting evidence, you're going to plow forward anyway and just hope it all works out in the end. And it's completely insane. It doesn't make any sense. And I don't know if, if, if you've seen this in the firefighting uh, industry or not, um, but being comfortable deviating from what you've been taught is right or what you've planned for to be right, we've got to be comfortable doing that. At a moment's notice, um, before the mission starts, before the, the firefight starts, I think, or, or, or during it, as the situation changes, we've got to be able to deviate uh, and you've got to be able to thrive in that environment as well. This then led into the topic of trust. How did you frame that question? I was really excited to ask this question, Patty. The, the leadership under fire team embraces the notion that victory is is dependent on speed of execution and not just in sense of completing tasks quickly, but generating a unit tempo that starts to seize the initiative away from the adversary, in our case, the fire, um, and, and continues to build in our favor until the contest has been decided. Our own experiences, I think, lead us to believe that and the notion has been affirmed by our academic studies in optimal performance that, that all of that is true. And at this time in, in 2014, we were deeply exploring the factors that, that contributed to winning tempo. And so the foundation is a sense of mutual trust among all team members. And, and I think that that's something that, that we're going to hear quite a bit from the commander. Um, it, it's a mutual trust that's created by shared experiences and, and confidence in one another and familiarity with one another. Because Patty, when we have mutual trust, the, the byproduct is decentralized decision making. It, it's problem solving happening at all levels. It's a lot of implicit communication when, when in itself can be a, a huge force multiplier on the fire ground. So any leader and any subordinate would want that sort of culture. And I couldn't wait uh, to ask him to characterize the SEALs operational philosophy. So if we relied on explicit guidance and control, I think we would cease to be the SEAL teams. Um, we would become more conventional uh, in our mindset. Uh, and uh, I, I don't say that to slam conventional uh, Department of Defense elements. They're, they're essential and necessary. We don't do what Marines do. We don't do what, what Big Army does. We don't take uh, you know, key terrain and hold it uh, for long periods of time. We just don't have the size for that. We're very comfortable in these small teams doing these surgical things, but we're not the sledgehammer. Um, that being said, to answer the question, we, we practice what we call command by negation. And it's very effective for us, and it's very effective for, for how we operate on the battlefield. And what that means is if, if I'm a ground force commander of an operation in Afghanistan, uh, uh, that means I'm the, 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 the head guy in charge uh, making calls. Uh, I don't micromanage my men. We have command by negation. And what that means is my guys will call me and inform me what they're doing. And I implicitly let them do it because I know that they have the best advantage or the best angle or perception on, on what needs to happen on that, on that particular piece of the target. Um, the the, the counterexample would be a guy coming over the radio and saying, hey, sir, can I do this? And then me coming back and saying, yes, you may do that. And then them coming back and saying, okay, I'm going to do this. You know, depending on what he's asking to do, you've just tied up the net and probably sacrificed a minute or two figuring out... Uh, how to say yes. That's ridiculous. Um, that comes with trust, though, trust and confidence in, in the men that, that I'm employing. 
if I, if I have trust and confidence in their ability to read the tactical situation and respond to the threats, then I should be able to trust them to make decisions without me saying, you know, yes, you may. It just takes too long otherwise, and we find on the battlefield, often the enemy is lighter than we are. They're not wearing body armor. Um, we're in their terrain. We're in their home, so they, they know that environment uh, physically. And so if we're not able to move quickly with approvals to respond to the threats, then they're going to they're gonna beat us to them. They're going to beat us to the high ground, and, uh, and now you have a whole other problem in front of you. So, so we do that. We empower our leaders to make decisions and act, which I think translates to speed, um, even when wearing a, you know, 100 pounds of stuff. Um, it's worked well for us. So did you have any reactions to that answer? Well, at the time that this panel happened, we were beginning to suspect that, that these were tenets of success that applied to firefighting, business, and war fighting, and competitive athletics. Really, uh, I think just about every endeavor imaginable. Of course, by now we know that, and we know so much more, thanks in part to the perspectives of, of seasoned professionals like the commander. And I think of a quote by a, a really great human performance expert. His name is, is Sid Hale. And he had two long and distinguished careers as, as one as a, a chief warrant officer five leading Marines in combat and the other as a senior leader in the Los, in Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department. And he said that essentially that the principles of optimal performance are, are universal. It's only the application that's contextual. And so we know for certain now that what makes a fire battalion or an infantry battalion far outperform their strength in numbers are these things that the commander's already talking about here. And the potential for application extends from battlefields to boardrooms to factories and to courtrooms and to ballparks. And I think it's imperative to emphasize that because it's easy to it's easy uh, to build a team that performs well when conditions are optimal. But I think that what bold stakeholders want is a team that's optimized for performance when conditions are are quite difficult, when everything is going wrong on the fire ground or, or when something tragic happens that that crushes morale or when market share erodes. I think there's a lot of factors to consider, but I know that the commander has unparalleled experience and expertise preparing individuals and building teams to thrive when the chips are down. And so here uh, I ask him to articulate some of the important lessons that he's learned in training elite war fighters. And I ask him in particular to talk about how he values human factors in selection and training. I think to thrive in chaos, you have to train in chaos. We see this in the news all the time, people that panic, right? Uh, in, in school shootings or the movie theater shootings where, you know, there's someone who comes in the door with a gun or, or, or represents a life-threatening situation and there's a way out right there or a way to defend oneself and, and instead of taking it, people lock up and freeze because they're, they're incapable of making decisions. The blood drains from their head, uh, you know, they lose, you know, fine motor skills and they, they freeze, they panic. Um, so, you know, we're going through this class and they're telling us this, this study they did. And they said, what do you think happened with SEALs when we, when we ran them through this type of stress test to see what would happen? And, of course, you know, we thought, well, you know, we probably jumped right up to the optimal line and then just stayed there forever. And they said, no, you're way off. Uh, you guys actually spiked like two times higher than a normal human being on cortisol. So you really freak out. And then you come down really quickly, though, to the sweet spot. So while someone else stays freaked out, you guys just go like off the charts, crazy, insane panic, but then bounce right back down and, and, and you maintain, and then you make your decisions and you move forward. And I thought that was really interesting. And then the follow-on question, is that a nurture or, or a nature piece? 
because um, that's chaos. So, so that, that's how we respond in chaos physically. It's what our body's doing. How did we get there as an organization? I, I don't think it's I, I don't think it's nature as much as it is nurture. It's probably a little bit of nature. Probably people that are attracted to our organization are, are, are on the fringes of society anyway. But we, we foster that. And, and we build upon that, and we introduce stress to people, um, which they interpret as life-threatening scenarios, and, and sometimes they are. You know, uh, we do this thing in the pool where we uh, put a guy on a scuba regulator, throw him down in the bottom of the pool, and spin him around, take his mask off, punch him in the ribs, and tie his air hose in knots. And one of our instructors came to us and said, uh, yeah, this, this turd over here, we're going to kick him out of here because he's panicking underwater. To which we respond, well, he's drowning. Of course he's panicking. <laughs> Um, you know, but can we can we work on that? Can we fix that? Is he trainable? Can we can we train that panic out of him to stay calm and solve the problem in the midst of life-threatening situations? Um, depends on the guy, but but I find that so this is what's interesting too. So that that pool competency test that we did, our first instincts was no, we can't train that out of a guy. Now, you either have it or you don't. You're born with it or not. Um, then we did a statistical study of everyone that's ever taken that test, and this was very interesting. We found that given enough tries, our pass rate for that specific test was in the 94 percentile. So of 100 people that take it, given enough tries, 94 percent will graduate that test at some point. The only question is how many tries are we going to give them? What that teaches me is that it's trainable. You can train someone to thrive in chaos. You can train someone to lower that cortisol, their body to respond naturally, uh, and, and thrive in a chaos, life-threatening situation and get to that sweet spot where they're making clear, conscious decisions. Eric, again, this was recorded several years ago. What advancements have been made in research and training since that time? Well, Patty, I think that there's exciting things happening on several different levels. You know, through rigorous academic study and critical examination of our own experiences, the Leadership Under Fire team has significantly enhanced our understanding of of optimizing human performance under stress. And, and and this, in turn, I think is changing the landscape in the fire service, but also even far beyond that. One thing that I'm particularly excited about is the opportunity this spring. Um, I'll have to participate in the, the sixth mental performance initiative that's hosted by the New York City Fire Department. And this is a long-term, fully immersive seminar that exposes performance leaders in the FDNY to several human factors, mm -hmm. subject matter experts from the fire service and experts from academia and from professional sports and law enforcement and from other endeavors. And I'm really passionate about this program because it's teaching committed professionals who go to a lot of fires and complex emergencies how, how to optimize their performance. And the FDNY is leading the way in, in appreciating human factors and I'm beginning to see how this is going to eventually have a huge impact on the fire service and beyond. Also, as a team, our relationships have grown considerably. LUF now partners with, with elite human factors experts from, from places like Columbia University and the United States Military Academy at West Point and, and mental skills coaching staffs from several professional sports teams and the leading authorities on how to build resilience so that we can prevent emotional trauma and PTSD. In addition to our fire department leaders, performance psychologists, our seasoned commanders from the battlefield and, and leading experts in, in functional fitness and exercise physiology, mm -hmm. I'm really confident that, that LUF has assembled a, a human performance team that's 
as diverse as, as it is knowledgeable. And in my mind, it's really unparalleled. Hey, listeners, we hope you're enjoying the podcast. The Leadership Under Fire team is excited to share that the 2019 National Optimizing Human Performance Summit will take place in Annapolis, Maryland, March 29th through 30th. This event, aimed at building your anchor, will explore resilience at the individual, team, and organizational levels, as well as from the tactical, mental, and moral perspectives. Summit speakers and panelists include Jen Baker, Senior Associate Athletics Director at John Hopkins University, Brendan Cauley of the FDNY, Lynn Vincent and Sarah Vladek, the authors of the New York Times bestseller Indianapolis, former U.S. Navy SEAL and functional fitness trainer Stu Smith, and more. Participants will collaborate in small groups with LUF advisors, plus have a chance to participate in a functional fitness workout. Registration is limited, so act fast. For more information, visit our website or email contact at leadershipunderfire.com. We'll land there for now and move on to an important pillar within Leadership Under Fire, the moral imperative. What did the commander have to say on that topic? So our team invests a lot of effort in exploring the ethical foundations of public service and the moral imperatives of leadership, because these aspects of, of leadership and performance are even more important than an understanding of the hard science, I think, behind being your best when operating under stress. So I asked the commander how he defines moral courage within the context of his operational environment. And then I wanted to follow up by asking him to tell us um, how he can instill moral courage in others. Let's listen in. I think um, I think moral courage is tied partly to integrity, which you mentioned, which I, I, I think is very important. I don't necessarily think moral courage is always doing the right thing. I think that's part of it, trying to do the right thing. But you have to understand also in my community, we live in the gray. Um, so that's not the black and it's not the white, it's, it's the gray. And we bounce around a lot in there. And, and we look for ways to get to yes with what we need to get done on the battlefield. Um, that involves <clears throat> you know, very fuzzy lines and sometimes making mistakes. Um, sometimes uh, interpreting commander's intent. Part of moral courage is understanding that nobody's perfect. Uh, it's trying to make the right decisions in, in very stressful um, and uh, um, you know, threatening situations, but then recognizing that, that we will fail. Uh, moral courage is, is disdaining failure, but accepting it as you know, the reality of, of what we're doing. Like I said, we're not, we're not going to be able to, nor we should, nor should we uh, reduce risk to zero. So, so then taking that and saying, okay, well, how, how do we apply that? How do we fall forward? How do we teach someone to take that mistake, that failure, own it, and now, and now move on and use that to become a better human being, uh, a better operator, a better father, a better husband, um, whatever the case may be. That, that to me is difficult to do. Uh, instead of you know, the, the, the counter of lying to oneself, hiding, hiding mistakes, uh, falsifying documents to cover ourselves, we try to avoid that. We'd rather a guy make his mistake, come clean with it, um, and that, that, that takes moral courage, I think. Eric, what was your reaction to the commander's description of the degree of latitude among SEAL teams? Well, there's some excellent lessons here, Patty, because the commander really articulates how the concept of mutual trust that we talked about previously it is the cultural cornerstone of any team, especially one that has to fight and defeat an adversary. I think it's important to understand that mutual trust isn't a platitude. Rather, it's it's formed by strong familiarity between team members 
through sharing common experiences and, and by having a solid understanding of what the boss's intent is. And the latitude he's talking about here is the, it's the byproduct of mutual trust. If the boss trusts the troops and vice versa, then the boss can allow the troops to exercise a great deal of initiative within the commander's intent. One of the many positive effects that this culture has is it, it promotes implicit communication because there's no need for an overwhelming amount of explicit command and control over the radio. It totally eliminates the need for micromanagement. And so he has a really great answer for us here. I think it depends on the leader, uh, on how much we are given by our commanders. Uh, we have good SEAL leaders and we've had bad SEAL leaders, and I, I've worked for both. Um, I worked for one leader that, uh, before Target was secure, was calling me on a cell phone in Afghanistan to find out the details of what was going on. Uh, you know, very micromanaging, reduced my role as a ground force commander to a communicator. Um, that's crippling. Because if, if he's crippling me by not letting me be a ground force commander, then I'm, I'm being taken out of my job to communicate to him every little thing of what's happening on target. The result of that is the guy below me has to step up and fill my shoes now. And then the guy below him has to step into his shoes. And so we're less effective on the battlefield. In, in, in naval special warfare, we like to say we have flat leadership. Um, where we try to avoid this hierarchy. Now, we have a hierarchy because we are in the military, and, and that's just the nature of DOD, and that's, that's fine. But um, I think it takes maturity and some finesse to be able to work, work through that horizontally. Uh, we'll reach mission success either way, but then the question is, how effective do we want to be? Do we want to reach our optimal potential? And then when we do get the really hard target that, that we can't afford, uh, we can't afford inefficiencies on, then, then I think we need to have that autonomy. You always push for that. What's interesting, though, is I've seen people push for autonomy until they're the guy in charge. And then all of a sudden, uh, all of a sudden they want to just control every piece of it. And you can't. You've got to let go. That's hard to do. Uh, it's a joint effort, and, uh, and other people have grown through that process as well. Their leadership development, their ability to, to learn, um, and so it's enriched the process for everybody. That's worth that individual sacrifice from a leader to let go of those reins a little, I think. Eric, can you explain to our listeners a little bit more about the commander's experience, not only in the field, but training SEALs as well? Sure, Patty. So the commander has had a significant amount of influence on SEAL selection and SEAL training. And what I wanted to do was gain a better understanding of the appreciation for human factors in that process. You know, the fire service um, is undergoing a slow but steady evolution. And so I imagined that there had to be a similar arc in his community. And, and so I wanted to explore that. So for, for 50 years, it's about how long we've been building SEALs. We've been overvaluing physical performance and undervaluing what we call character. Uh, what I mean by character are it is, does this guy, does this potential candidate have the character attributes I want in a teammate. And, and that's, the, that's the revolution we're really having in the SEAL teams right now is, is saying, okay, that's what we want. Now, it's, it's probably incorrect to say we undervalued it. I think we always valued that. I don't think we knew how to quantify it. Uh, you talk about quantifying risk. Well, now we're learning how to quantify character attributes as well. And we're realizing that we can do this. You know, what we used to call the turd factor uh, was we'd be an instructor and we'd say, oh, that guy's a turd, kick him out of here. 
Now, that guy's a stud. He was either a turd or a stud. Those are the two terms that we use to identify our candidates. That was as far as the vocabulary got. Um, so we realized that wasn't adequate. So we brought in these psychologists, uh, you know, the guys in the back that are the smart guys, and they stood next to us, and we said, hey, that guy's a turd. And I said, okay, well, what do you mean by turd? Well, I mean he sucks. Okay, well, yeah. <laughs> That's redundant. So what is it you're seeing in him that you don't like? Well, I don't know. He, you know, he's not a teammate. Okay, well, what do you mean by that? Well, you know, they're on the log, you know, and I don't know how many people have seen log PT on TV. It's one of the things we do to stress the team before self, and we basically give this big telephone pole to six guys, and we have them do different exercises, whether it's, you know, over the head or, or sit-ups with them or running down the beach or they're bouncing on your shoulder, and it sucks. This gigantic log just bounces on your collarbone and, and rubbing it raw. Well, you can identify very quickly with that, uh, Who's not a teammate? Who's not willing to put self-sacrifice uh, uh, as his number one priority because he'll start ducking his shoulder a little bit? And when he ducks his shoulder, you know, what was 30 or 40 pounds distributed to each guy all of a sudden becomes, you know, 70 pounds between each guy, and everyone else gets really pissed really quickly. Um, so, so that guy doesn't have a character attribute we're looking for. You know, he's selfish. Now, that may be... That may be a data point. We're not going to make a decision on a data point, but we're going, to, we're going to take that data point, we're going to file it away, and we're going to look for a trend. And if we see a trend of data showing us that this guy is selfish, that he's going to duck under that log or duck under that boat, um, those are indications that when it comes time for operating in a, in a chaotic environment where lives actually matter, he might be more selfish than the guy we need on our team. He might be the guy not willing to run through the door uh, for an American hostage and, um, you know, accept bullets on his body as, as a result. That's not what we're looking for. So, so the traits, the important traits for us are those, those specific character attributes we want in a teammate, but those aren't going to necessarily be applicable to you. Uh, we did a lot of analysis and a lot of uh, surveys to, to figure out what was important to the SEALs. You, you have to identify culturally what's important to you. Before you can say, as an organization, we're going to advocate these values and we're going to reinforce them. So I think step one is, what is your culture value in a teammate? Uh, for us, you know, there, there was ten attributes and, you know, we boiled all these things down and, and, and clustered them and said, yeah, this, this is what we believe in. This is, this is the guy we're looking for, uh, or, or girl, and, and we look for similar character attributes in whoever we're going to have on our team. These days, everything's joint and there are... <clears throat> absolutely zero operations I know of that were um, completely unilateral SEAL operations that we've done. Not one. There's, there's always been at least one other person from some other organization that's been on, a part of them uh, to provide some capability that we felt we could, uh, someone else was an expert in. Um, so, so, so step one is defining those attributes that matter to you culturally. If you don't do that, uh, I, I don't think you'll succeed because there's a saying a guy came up with recently that I love. He says, uh, culture will eat strategy for breakfast every single day. It doesn't matter how perfectly crafted your strategy is to change your culture or, or affect something in your culture. If it's not appealing to that culture where it stands at the beginning, uh, it's just not going to work. It's, it's a fruitless effort. Um, step two would be, reinforcing those values organizationally. Was there anything that stood out to you regarding what the commander said about leadership at the individual level? Well, there is. Um, and my perspective here is pretty simple, but it's, 
it should not be lost on any of the listeners. What struck me the most about the commander's perspective is how exceedingly modest he is. This, to me, uh, is a trait of a wise leader. And I think that the humility that's reflected in his answer really resonates, should resonate with every leader and aspiring leader who hears it. Knowing your enemy is very important. I think knowing yourself is even more important. And, and, and knowing yourself, I think, means knowing the culture that you're leading, that you're managing. And if you're not, if you don't understand that culture and how to manage and lead those men and women, you're going to be ineffective. Um, that's been a very difficult leadership lesson for me. I think the important piece is understanding that culture, understanding who you're leading, understanding how to manage them, um, not faulting them for who they are as people or as a culture, that, that's who you are, but understanding how to lead them. You can't lead a Marine like you can lead a SEAL, like you can lead a firefighter, like you can lead uh, a third baseman. Um, they're, they're different cultures. You have to appeal to that culture and figure out how to shape and guide, and that's incredibly difficult. And, and I can't say uh, I've always been successful doing it, but to take it back to your answer, I think that's the most important leadership lesson I've learned. There's not one tool that will be applicable across every problem. So finally, wrapping up the conversation about leadership literally under fire, what did you ask the commander? The Naval Special Warfare community, uh, I think we all acknowledge, it, it's relatively small, and their operational elements are small as well, but they're small teams that, that encounter big problems, right? or, or at least problems that have the potential to, to become big. Now, transitioning to my own fire department experience, you know, my, my experience is probably more reminiscent of most of America than it is like the FDNYs or, or Chicago's or, or Houston fire departments, because I work on a small fire department in an urban setting. And, and by necessity, you know, we take the same number of people to a, a private dwelling fire as we do to a large commercial fire. In every case, we start out behind the eight ball. And, and we have to find a way to quickly begin shifting initiative from the fire and into our favor. So the military equivalent to that is being outmanned and outgunned, right? And I asked the commander to tell us about a time when the operational philosophy and the culture of the SEAL teams caused him to succeed or, or even thrive when the odds were unfavorable. Let's hear his response. Yeah, this was a hard one, um, simply because I've never been undermanned and outgunned. Um, uh, you know, you know, half truths. Um, we're, you know, we're very calculated in how we approach the battlefield. And so without any ego at all, I do say that we're very rarely outmanned and outgunned um, because we are judicious about uh, where we can go, uh, where we want to go, what we want to do. As soft, a lot of times we have the option of turning down operations that we think are, are, are bogus. Uh, that guy's not worth the risk we're, we're going to take by going after him. Um, you know, a lot of people in the DOD don't have that luxury. So they find themselves in situations that are outside their ability to control. Um, that's unfortunate, but it's also necessary. Um, we have a lot more luxury. So, so you know, there's an occasion. It does happen. Everyone's seen Lone Survivor, I'm sure. So it happens. Uh, from time to time, but, but they're really few and far between. Um, normally, we own the battle space when we're there. We own the night, and uh, we're very careful about how we move and, and maneuver, uh, staying, you know, ideally three or four steps ahead of the enemy. Um, so when he decides to move, we've already countered it, and um, uh, it, it's, kinda, it's actually kind of anticlimactic. 
99% uh, uh, of my ops have been very anticlimactic, not like the movies at all, uh, because, because we're so far ahead of the problem that there's nothing they can even do to get out of it, and it's, it's actually kind of embarrassing. Um, yeah, it is. It's, it is. But so, so to answer your question, I thought, well, what's something similar to that? So I thought of, well, instead of being undermanned or outgunned on my heels, and we found ourselves on our heels, and we found ourselves in a situation that uh, we weren't familiar with, and we didn't know how to respond to. Um, and so the big question was, what, what are we going to do? Uh, they wanted, a lot of them wanted us to come home. They said, hey, we've never had anything like this before. You guys just need to pack up shop and come home and, and, and take care of this back home. Bury your brothers and, um, and, and be with your families. And there's, there was a logical thought process to that, and it's a very rational uh, uh, course of action we could have taken. And instead we said, no, um, no, we're going to stay and, and, and we're going to fight. And so, you know, we Skyped our parents and we Skyped our wives and we said, we're still in the fight and we're going to see it to the end of, of you know, our responsibility. And um, we're going to do what we came here to do and we're not going to leave till it's done. And that's the best thing we can do for our own healing. And that's hard to say. Uh, you know, it was difficult to do, but, um, you know, sometimes... Sometimes the right decision is uh, not the easy decision. It's probably usually true. Uh, so, you know, one of the things in our ethos is I, I'm never out of the fight, and that's really what we stuck to in that moment uh, when we were on our heels, when we were unsure of what to do, uh, how to respond to, to what happened. And then, you know, it leads back to that previous question, you know, to, to not leave you hanging. We were very responsible on the battlefield and, and judicious, and surgical in the enemy we went after, and um, remarkably effective uh, in how we did it. And again, I don't say that with any pride. I was I was very proud of the men that uh, we led to take it after the enemy um, so carefully and, and precisely, um, with, with no collateral damage, with no uh, civilians killed in the process. It, it was fantastic. Um, so we responded, you know, to that to that shock. We got our we got our we got our our, our bell rung in that moment. And we took it, and we, we leaned forward. And I think that, again, ties back to what we're talking about by mentally maneuvering. Um, <clears throat> it's one thing to take a punch. Uh, you know, you've got to be able to return it as well. And, and we're going to take punches in the SEALs. We're going to, in the Marines, and in the fire, we're going to have losses. We're not going to be able to mitigate that risk to zero. How you respond after taking that punch is critical. Uh, and, I, and I think, you know, uh, making yourself hard to kill, that, that's what it's about. It's about, um, you know, falling forward, picking yourself back up and, and staying in the fight. Um, Dave Grossman calls it the bulletproof mind. Whatever you want to call it, it's an aggressive mindset. It's, it's never being out of the fight. No matter what fight you're talking about or what enemy you're, you're talking about uh, fighting, uh, Al-Qaeda, Taliban, a, a fire, um, never being out of it, never quitting. It's okay to fail. It's not okay to quit. And I think that's what defines survivors. Um, not always. There's always that element of luck. But, but if there's a chance and you have that aggressive mindset, I, I think that's when you're going to survive. Eric, is there anything else you'd like to add today? Well, I would certainly like to thank the commander for contributing to the original Risk and Resiliency panel and, and for giving us some sage insights that are every bit as legitimate now as they were several years ago. And... Uh, Patty, I also want to say that this this podcast has been a lot of fun, and and I want to thank you very much for for inviting me on. 
I think that the wisdom that's presented in the past several episodes, uh, it has unlimited potential for application. And for me, there's no doubt that the benefit is both is for me is both personal and professional. Yes. So <laughs> I'm really excited to see what you do in the future, both with this podcast and, and with uh, with other leadership under fire programs. I'm so excited to be part of the team, and I'm really appreciative of your insight and sharing all of your um, experience with us today and with me. And I'm looking forward to the future events that Leadership Under Fire will host. And soon we'll be in Annapolis having more conversations like this. So looking forward to that. I'm looking forward to it as well, Patty. Support is provided in part by Conway Shield. Conway Shield is one of the few companies led by a president who has saved a life at the threat of his own. Paul Conway serves with a relentless firefighter mentality like his brother and father before him. Founded in 1985, Conway Shield manufactures America's finest helmet shields while arming firefighters and law enforcers with products Paul Conway himself would trust in the line of fire. Leadership Under Fire Optimizing Human Performance podcast listeners can receive a 10% discount site-wide using the code LUF more at conwayshield.com. The Leadership Under Fire podcast provides a platform that helps to prepare performance leaders to navigate the moral, mental, emotional, intellectual, and physical rigors in high-risk and ultra-competitive settings by developing strength of mind, body, character, and critical thought. For more on this, visit leadershipunderfire.com.